Welcome to the Mind and Matter Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ian Oswald. Ian has a PhD in chemistry from the University of Texas, Dallas, and he is principal scientist at Abstracts Technologies, a cannabis research and product development company. He's an expert in using cutting-edge analytical chemistry techniques to study plant chemistry and has done a lot of work to decipher the chemistry of commercial cannabis, including lesser-known compounds found in its essential oils and how these relate to the sensory qualities of marijuana. We talked about the aroma of cannabis and the chemical compounds that dictate different aspects of its aroma, consumer preferences when it comes to aroma of marijuana, terpenes, which are volatile compounds abundant in the plant world, his research on volatile sulfur compounds, which are found in nature in things like garlic or in the aerosols produced by skunks, and how lesser-known cannabis compounds in this chemical family relate to some of the pungent, gassy, or skunky odors that are commonly described for cannabis. And we also talked about his journey from academia into the private sector and what's on the horizon for cannabis research. So if you're interested in cannabis varieties, the different types of marijuana strains that are out there, uh, how the aromas vary across these varieties, and what the chemistry is behind different aspects of cannabis aroma and how all of these things relate and tie in together in terms of how cannabis is classified and the properties and effects it might have, this will be a really interesting episode for you. Ian shared a lot of really cool stuff from some recent research that he's done, that I've done, that others have done that really starts, or at least begins, to to make sense of some of the major outstanding questions about commercial cannabis chemistry. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe. Don't forget to sign up for the free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. And check out the links in the episode description if you want to check out some of the research that we cited in this episode, or you want to learn how you can support the podcast further. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a product I use called Everyday Dose. They have created excellent coffee and matcha products with functional mushrooms and other supplements and less caffeine than traditional coffee or matcha products. I actually reached out to them because I've been using their product for about a year or so and listeners often ask me about my daily and weekly diet habits. They make a really good mushroom-based coffee alternative. It contains myconutrients with antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties as well as collagen protein to help support healthier skin, nails, hair, and joints and the amino acid L-theanine from tea leaves. Each cup has just about 39 milligrams of caffeine. That helps eliminate the caffeine crash that can come if you drink regular coffee, which has much higher caffeine levels. And they use a unique cold extraction process that results in lower acidity than normal coffee. And the caffeine microdose makes it suitable even for someone who doesn't normally drink coffee. This mushroom-based product is made using a double extraction from 100% mushroom fruiting bodies like lion's mane and chaga to maximize the extraction of micronutrients like beta-glucans, tritone, terpenes, and sterols. Other brands don't typically do this, making Everyday Dose one of the highest quality products of its kind. It's gluten, dairy, and nut-free. There's no added sugar. It's paleo and keto-friendly and made with kosher ingredients. There are no grains or fillers, and it is lab-tested to ensure quality. I really like the taste of Everyday Dose compared to black coffee and other mushroom coffees, and they have a mushroom matcha product loaded with functional mushrooms and collagen proteins, so if you like green tea matcha, you'll probably like that product too. If you're interested in a healthy coffee alternative, I highly recommend giving Everyday Dose a try. Check out the link in the episode description or visit everydaydose.com to learn more. If you go there, you can find special offers that they have for getting a free frother and free travel pack of on-the-go doses with your purchase.
Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today. And with that, Here's my conversation with Dr. Ian Oswald. Yeah, sure. So, um, so my name's Ian Oswald, and uh, I'm a chemist by training. Uh, I have a pretty diverse background from the academic world in that respect. So I started out doing research back in 2009 and 10 as an undergraduate at the University of North Texas. And I was working under the tutelage of Professor Muhammad Omari, who focused on developing new types of uh, phosphorescent materials, understanding the electronic properties of those. And so I got to do a lot of inorganic synthesis, organic synthesis, uh, as well as a lot of spectroscopic type of uh, techniques to kind of understand the electronic properties of those. So that gave me a good kind of uh, background into, you know, the world of organic chemistry and how th- those can be applied for kind of the applications. Um, from there, I did a master's with him for two years, uh, kind of continuing the work I was working on as an undergraduate. We were able to file some patents um, as well as publish a few papers around these cool uh, phosphors that we developed. Uh, I then went to the U- University of North, uh, University of Texas at Dallas uh, in 2014, and or 2013, sorry. And I worked on solid state chemistry, and so basically we we're developing new types of materials with these exotic electronic and magnetic properties uh, that, in the future, could have some potential use. Uh, but right now, they're still kind of self-contained in the uh, the physics world, trying to understand how they work and how they can be applied to new sort of technologies. Um, and then from there, I did four, four years there Then I went to do a postdoc at uh, the Colorado State University. And when I was there, I was working on these hybrid organic inorganic perovskites. And so you may have heard of these materials. These are, again, solid state materials, but uh, they're excellent um, chromophores. And so they make really good solar cells. And so they've been around now for about 10, 15 years. And I was involved in helping understand some of the the really, the really detailed chemistry surrounding them, because uh, they're kind of fascinating materials where they they act like really good semiconductors, but they have none of the char- chemical characteristics of, say, silicon or germanium, those sort of things. So anyway, I did a little bit of work there. So a lot of different cool uh, uh, experimental techniques we used. We did a lot of neutron scattering at uh, national, national labs, that sort of thing. 
And then when I was finishing that up, I was applying for different positions in industry. I, I had decided I, I want to get out of academics. Um, I think it's, it had kind of run its course. I think I'm my brain works t- in too much of a creative application manner for academics. And so uh, my good buddy, TJ, who's actually the VP of research here at Abstracts, uh, called me up around the same time that I was looking for different positions. And so he kind of explained to me very generally about what Abstracts was starting to do. And it was only about a year, year and a half old at the time. And that's really involved in basically, you know, developing uh, flavor and fragrance applications off of using cannabis kind of as that base, uh, you know, profile that we're after. Um, and so it, you know, since then it's expanded to many different types of projects. We have, uh, obviously our core business is focused around understanding the aroma of cannabis and, you know, creating products around that, but also, you know, this has led us to do some really cool other, uh, other work such as, you know, we have some cultivation studies going right now. Uh, so kind of going into more of the breeding aspect of cannabis. Uh, and so um, we have a lot of different sort of, you know, fields that we're looking into uh, surrounding cannabis, but uh, it's also been expanded beyond that as well. So we're now looking into hops and other botanical flowers, as well as other types of products that consumers use all the time, probably throughout the day. Um, and, you know, really trying to understand what makes these products have a certain quality to them and understanding that on a chemical level. And so that's where I come in. Uh, really, I'm, I'm basically leading the team in the lab for the most part, uh, doing the actual hard science. And again, because we're in, interested essentially what makes things taste a certain way or smell a certain way, uh, one of the key technologies that we use is this two-dimensional gas chromatography system uh, at Abstracts. And so, you know, they invested in that early on and I've helped develop that technology throughout the years. Um, and really, it, it, it gives us kind of the, the key uh, information to understand what we want to, both in cannabis, hops, as well as other sort of uh, products that we're trying to understand. So um, why do you guys have such a focus on the aroma of cannabis? Why is that important? Yeah, so... I think that there's two parts to it. I think when the company first started, Kevin, Jack, and Max, they're the owners. Uh, they started the company in 2018. I think they recognized that there was a severe under a lack of understanding as to the chemistry behind the aroma of cannabis. Um, and so because of that, they saw, you know, fr- from a market standpoint that there could be some, some sort of, you know, angle there. Um, but also, as you know, I'm sure you're aware, Nick, the aroma of cannabis can kind of dictate uh, or, you know, it's hypothesized to potentially dictate kind of how a product may influence the, uh, you know, the psychoactive properties of cannabis. Um, and so a lot of folks have been studying cannabinoids, you know, on a routine basis. Um, and so, you know, that, that field at the time felt kind of saturated. Uh, and so I think, you know, the, the angle of kind of looking at, well, what, what is all the other chemistry that's occurring in cannabis? What's going on there? You know, can, how can we kind of educate the consumers as well as, you know, build a a market around that. Uh, How can we do that in a way that's, you know, really diving deep into the chemistry behind it. And so that was, that was really the main, the main goal, I think, when the company was first started. And, you know, where does the, where does the aroma actually come from in cannabis? Typically, typically people talk about these things called terpenes. And so what, uh, what kind of contribution are the terpenes making to the aroma and you know, what are some of the question marks there? 
Yeah. And, and so this is a great question and one that, um, you know, we've been hammering away at everything but terpenes, but that's not to say terpenes aren't important at all. Um, you know, as you showed in your paper, <laughs> there's a, there's a wide variety of kind of major terps that can produce the aroma of cannabis. Um, but they don't necessarily describe the aromas as specifically as we'd like. Uh, and one of those, one aspect of that is for a long time, people didn't really understand that uh, what people call gassy, gassy cannabis or skunky cannabis, that kind of that smell that everybody kind of knows. Um, there wasn't not, there was not a clear understanding about what is the chemistry behind that specific aroma um, that cannabis produces. And so again, kind of going back to how I was saying that a lot of folks were, um, you know, abstract started trying to look at, uh, you know, what, what do we, what, what can we do differently that other people are not looking at? Well, within the aroma of cannabis, like you mentioned, a lot of folks were looking at chirpings. And the main reason that is, is because they are the most, uh, you know, the highest concentration compounds, you know, in the volatiles in cannabis. And so, you know, those include beta-myrcene. They're usually typically very high in OGs. Uh, hemp is almost always myrcene rich. Um, you have caryophyllene, which is a sesquiterpene. It has a more muted aroma because it is heavier. It's a larger molecule than uh, beta-myrcene or, you know, the pinenes. Uh, but it's in many different things as well. Uh, you know, limonene, D-limonene, we see that in basically every variety. Uh, and it can be dominant, usually typically in hybrid varieties. Uh, they tend to be present in greater concentrations, um, or at least what people would consider to be hybrid. Um, and then, you know, linalool, geraniol, you, you see all these sort of things. And uh, I, I do want to say something here. I think this is, you know, the, the terpene world, I think there's some, um, not necessarily misinformation, but people may be kind of like assuming things that are not necessarily correct. And that is that if you do not see <clears throat> some of these terpenes on a COA label or on the packaging label of your product does not mean that those other things are not there. And so what I mean by that is in our analysis using this 2DGC, we've optimized the methodology to basically have a very wide dynamic range to see all the high concentration compounds and low concentration compounds. Um, and I'll explain why the low ones matter just as much as the high ones in a bit. But we basically always see if you have like, you know, a COA that says we test for 18 terpenes, oftentimes we'll get these tested at a third party lab just to see what they say things look like. And they'll have a lot of non-detects for the, many of these compounds. Uh, but what we find is actually they're almost universally in these varieties. They're just in levels that are a bit too low, maybe for their methodology to see. But the way we work, we want to see that whole range. And so we've tuned our methodology to see it. Um, and so that is something I want to mention that I do think there's this, uh, you know, kind of misconception that if it's not on my COA and if it's not on my label, it's not there at all. And that's just not true. Um, but again, you know, we are interested in, well, okay, everybody's looking at the major terpenes. What about all this other stuff kind of in the lower concentration? And so, uh, and this is related going back to what is that skunky gassy aroma? People have been talking about the major terpenes for so long that if it was one of those, this question would have been answered a long time ago, but obviously it hasn't and it wasn't. Um, so, so, so what you're saying people, is, is what you're saying that none of the individual terpenes that are commonly found in cannabis smell like that skunky smell? Not at all. No. And so like I'd mentioned abstracts, you know, we, we, a large part of our business is flavor and aroma based, right? And so we have 
basically every major terpene, even many, many, many of the minor terpenes um, in our lab, in our flavor lab. And so we can go in and smell these one by one. And so if you were to ever swing by our lab, Nick, you could do the same thing. And you would, you would obviously say this, none of these smell like cannabis or like at least that scent that we're all kind of after. Um, and so, you know, I think that's the benefit of our business model is that we're able to leverage basically the, uh, the flavor side to kind of validate the chemistry that we're seeing, uh, you know, spat out from our instrumentation. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, when you're focusing on, there's many sort of different aroma notes that you can often smell in different cannabis products and different strains and things. This gassy, skunky smell, why is this one particularly important? Do, do consumers tend to fixate on that? Is there an association that's made in people's minds between like the potency or the quality of the product and that particular aroma note? Or you know, why, why, is, why is this one so interesting to focus on? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think many people who consume cannabis do use this specific scent. It's this very, it's such a pungent smell. Uh, I, well, when you can get it that fresh, it's that, you know, it's very pungent. Um, but they use that as essentially a quality marker to their nose to say, is this high quality cannabis or not? Right. Is this, um, you know, is, is this gas weed, right? Is this going to make me feel a certain way because it has this aroma? And, you know, it's funny because they're not necessarily wrong because what we found in our studies is that these compounds are at the greatest concentration when the cannabis is fresher. So, you know, I mean, people aren't necessarily wrong about that, where if you smell something and it is very pungent, it probably is a fresher product than if, you know, you smelled something and it had a, a lower amounts. Now that's not to say all varieties produce these equally because they don't. And that's a whole nother, you know, a whole nother story. Um, but the point is that if people really enjoy this aroma, and I think they do that because it has this sort of, um, you know, this time dependent manner uh, as to the pungency of it, uh, you know, folks, uh, that, that's the reason folks have really like honed in on it. But I also want to mention that I think there's another important kind of flip side to this coin here. So, you know, that those are folks who consume cannabis oftentimes want this really intense aroma, but a lot of folks who don't consume cannabis, I would say, are equally as kind of, um, you know, it's a nuisance odor to them, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that context, understanding the chemistry of, you know, this aroma within cannabis is probably the most important one to understand because, A, it's extremely diffuse, uh, meaning that, you know, you open a bag of cannabis, it's going to smell your entire room up, especially if, it, you know, there's a lot of these compounds in there. Um, and so that means that, you know, cultivators, breeders, uh, even if you live in an apartment complex, right, uh, this aroma is going to get around. And for people who don't consume cannabis, oftentimes it's described, like I said, as a nuisance odor. And so, you know, that could have implications for zoning laws, policy, um, as well as potentially, you know, would do, do people suspect, oh, well, I can smell this in, in my apartment, I'm getting high from it. You know, there could be actually, uh, even though that's totally incorrect, you know, there could be this sort of um, these sort of issues kind of for non-consumers that I want to mention as well. And so, you know, you mentioned that no individual terpene smells like weed, basically. And, yeah. you know, that's that's pretty well known to anyone who's ever smelled these things individually. And the explanation there, 
that people have, um, which is not unreasonable, is well, you know, the olfactory system is complicated. There's lots of non-linearities involved in how our mm-hmm. brains construct the perception of of what we smell from the individual chemical molecules floating through the air and, and getting up our nose. So even though no individual terpene is responsible for like the core weed smell, at least that skunky smell, it's really the combination. So there's some particular constellation that might be associated with that smell. And it's really about the the profile of all the terpenes. So has anyone been able to show that like different terpene profiles, different combinations of terpenes are associated with perceived quality or potency or this particular aroma or anything like that? So I think that comes down to user preference. So, uh, you know, in your paper, Nick, you showed a really nice figure that basically grouped many varieties that are rich in D-limonene, caryophylline, and myrcene kind of in the same bubble or the same kind of, uh, you know, group. But then you had these, you know, what people would consider to be kind of sativa varieties uh, in their own sort of classification. And I think in that respect, those actually terpenes do dictate those differences right there. Um, and from that perspective, I think that just depends on, well, what do you prefer? Right. Um, but yes, in, in, in those situations, obviously the terpenes are mixing together to produce specific types of aromas. Um, so in the sativa rich varieties, they're nearly always terpenaline rich and they have a very characteristic, uh, sativa aroma. So a lot of hazes, a lot of jacks, those sort of things, they all kind of have the same sort of background aroma to them. I will mention that they're very rarely skunky. They're kind of the outlier here in that context. Um, but everything else kind of runs together. Uh, but you can still have that kind of characteristic, uh, skunky back note that's in there. Um, and so you're, you know, and so your, your question of, do these things mix together to produce specific scents? Yes, but we're actually working on another paper right now that's going to basically kind of shed much more light on this in the context of the sensory aroma uh, um, perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think this, this next paper is going to be a follow-up to this one that just deciphered the skunkiness, but this next one's going to look into all, many other varieties of uh, aromas that this plant produces. And I think it'll be very enlightening as to what is the actual impact of the major terpenes, even the minor terpenes, and then potentially all these other things that exist in cannabis as well. So, so it's a fair restatement of that, that if you've got two distinct terpene profiles and two different cannabis strains, yes, they will have different aromas. You'll be able, mm-hmm. You will be able to smell a difference between them. And that is coming to a large extent from the different terpene profile in, in one versus the other. But it's at best not clear that that sort of skunky, gassy, pungent smell that is uh, very strongly associated with with cannabis is. It's not clear that that's coming from any particular terpene profile. Yeah, no, and not any particular combination of them either, right? Like you mentioned, you know, the olfactory system is incredibly complex, and people are just now starting to kind of understand how things work on a molecular level. There was a paper just published in Nature a few weeks ago that they they finally uh, worked out the crystal structure for one of the olfactory um, receptors in the nose, and they were binding a fatty fatty acid to it. And so that okay, that's that's one receptor. How many more are there in the human nose? But you're right that basically what we showed is that these things do not uh, these terpenes do not combine in any way to create that aroma, that skunky aroma. So 
so in the the essential oil of the plant, which produces all of the compounds of interest, basically, it produces mm-hmm. the cannabinoids like THC, which is where the psychoactive effects are primarily coming from. It produces volatile compounds like terpenes that float through the air that contribute to the aroma. You mentioned that the terpenes are the largest class of chemical compounds in the essential oil that are volatile, that are you know floating through the air. And then, of course, cannabinoids make up uh, a big fraction of the essential oil, but they're non-volatile. Yeah. And you guys have sort of looked at other stuff in there that's not right. as abundant, um, but maybe important in different ways. And so wh- why did you start to do that? And, and what are some of the key classes of compounds beyond the cannabinoids and the terpenes that are in that oil? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's exactly correct. Basically the cannabinoids make up the majority of the essential oil content. Then you have terpenes that are usually like on in, cured in fluorescence, maybe one to 3%. And then there's everything else. Everything else might total up to be 0.5% of the total mass might be. Um, but within there, there's hundreds of different compounds with different classifications as far as their functionality um, and so, for instance, you know, there's 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 already been a few papers that have been published looking at um, kind of what are those other compounds. And so, you know, there's esters are known, alcohols are known, uh, ketones are known, aldehydes, all these sort of things. Uh, but again, these variety or these compounds, uh, if you go either look at the aroma descriptors on like the Good Sense chemical database um, or PubChem. And you look at them, none of them will have that specific aroma that you're referring to, the skunky, gassy aroma. Uh, and so, you know, esters tend to be fruity. They tend to be, you know, they, they actually are essentially, you know, the drivers in many fruits uh, as to their kind of, you know, unique, unique flavors or tastes. Um, aldehydes are typically kind of sharp. They're more top notes, uh, but they're still not going to have that, that pungency that we're talking about with the skunky, gassy aroma. Yeah. And so... There's one other class, and so this is what we published on, and it was these uh, volatile sulfur compounds that we ended up finding. Okay, these are the ones that look like they could be the correct identification uh, as far as the chemistry behind that aroma. And you know, in our paper, we describe how we did that. So, so what exactly are volatile sulfur compounds, and where do they show up in nature outside of cannabis? Yes. Yeah, so VSCs are found in many different plants. Um, they're in some vegetables, they're in some uh, herbs, they're in some fruits, uh, as well as they're in <laughs> kind of unpleasant sources of smells. Uh, they actually add, uh, I think it's um, hydrogen sulfide or one, one of the very small sulfur containing compounds to natural gas because it has such a low odor threshold. If there's a natural gas leak, you can smell it because natural gas by itself doesn't have an aroma. So they add a tiny, tiny, tiny amount to that. So you can detect it in nature though. Um, so there are, I, I like to point out that there's animals as well that can produce this smell. So skunks can produce the smell. If you go look at the chemistry of their aerosol spray, they produce, I think it's like 20 to 30 different compounds that actually create that aroma. Um, but then, like I mentioned, some vegetables also produce it. So things like garlic produce mm. them, uh, onion produce them, uh, hops produce them. Um, and they're all different. They're all kind of chemically specific to whatever plant that is. So even though onion and garlic are in the same family, this, uh, what is it? I, I, I can't remember. Allier <laughs> or something. Ale- they're elaceous plants, right? Um, 
they produce still chemically distinct compounds that contain sulfur. And that's why they don't smell exactly the same, but they do still have a sort of pungency to them. Uh, same thing with skunks. They're kind of chemically specific. And then in the fruit world, actually, there's some really cool uh, kind of usually typically tropical fruits that can produce these sort of scents. And so one of them that, you know, here in the U.S., I don't know if people are as familiar with it, but durian, which is very popular. It's a fruit uh, over in uh, Asia uh, is extremely pungent. Uh, so durian produces, people have looked into it quite a bit because it has such a noxious sort of smell. Um, but it produces at least five or six different VSCs that each have kind of off-putting aromas. And it's so pungent that uh, there are hotels over in Asia that actually have signs on the front doors that say, do not bring durian in here because it smells so bad that it'll essentially stink <laughs> up the ho- hotel. Um, but then there's other things that are pleasant in the fruit world, such as uh, passion fruit. Um, so some of these tropical fruits that, you know, you think of maybe putting in like a mojito or uh, some sort of mixed drink, um, those oftentimes actually have a lot of their really um, pleasant characteristics are derived from VSCs. So it sounds like, you know, VSCs, volatile sulfur compounds across the board are, um, they're highly volatile. So they, they float through the air easily. They are highly potent typically, so a small concentration can be readily detected by the human nose. You know, you mentioned the example of just adding a tiny bit of some of these compounds to natural gas so it can be smelled. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, depending on the concentration and the specific molecule we're talking about, might be pleasant or unpleasant, but they often have a kind of uh, pungency or uh, a kind of kick to them. And, and, and very often, they, it sounds like they are not pleasant to smell. Yeah, I would say so. And and again, like you mentioned, these things are very sensitive to concentration, or the, I'd say the human nose is very sensitive to the concentration. Um, and so for an example of that is uh, grapefruit mercaptan. So grapefruit mercaptan is one of the key compounds in grapefruit. Um, and people will use in grapefruit, like drinks, like seltzers, that sort of thing. If you might smell them. They have this weird kind of sulfuric note to them. That's grapefruit mercaptan. Um, in the correct concentrations, which are extremely low, part per billion levels, it gives you that uh, grapefruit note that, you know, if you like grapefruit, you're really going to enjoy. But if it gets too high, it just becomes entirely sulfuric. And so we have this as an isolate in our lab. And if you open it and usually it'll come at about like 1% dilution in the bottle. And if you open it at 1%, the whole lab just reeks of sulfur. Um, From further away, where it might be more dilute in the air, uh, it might actually smell like a grapefruit, but as you get closer to the source, it tends to take on this really pungent kind of gross sort of sulfuric smell. So that's one example of that. And you mentioned that that VSCs are, are a key component of the aerosol that skunks produce. So yep. I think everyone probably knows uh, what that smell is like and how uh, how strong it is and how long it sticks around and how unpleasant it is. That's, I mean, that's the, the whole purpose of that for for the organism is is to use it for a defensive function uh so i guess a natural question is uh if that's where the skunky skunk smell literally comes from uh what's the connection between the skunky smell in cannabis yeah right i mean when when we framed it that way in our paper it seems so obvious what the answer was it's like oh well just obviously it's that after the fact but i feel like that's that's all science right <laughs> Everything's obvious after the fact. Um, but 
Yeah. So what we did is we, we use this advanced technology, this 2D gas chromatography, coupled with some fancy detectors, one of them being a sulfur chemiluminescence detector, which is only going to show us essentially compounds that contain sulfur in them. And so we measured a bunch of cannabis that had really high pungency as far as their aroma goes, and then really low pungency. And we found is these compounds that were in the high pungency cannabis. Um, so for instance, prenylthiol, uh, they were in much greater concentration. And so, you know, when we first did this, we went and sourced the, the material and we opened in the lab and it, it immediately was obvious that, okay, this is at least a very important part of uh, that aroma, that gassy aroma in cannabis that we're after. And you mix it with the terpenes and it, it really, really starts to emulate that smell that, you know, so many people really enjoy. Um, but what's funny about it, you know, you mentioned the relationship between skunks and cannabis, you know, the skunky smell cannabis, one of the key compounds in um, the skunk aerosol spray, uh, it's essentially chemically identical to that in cannabis. The only difference being there's a double bond in one in cannabis and then not in in the skunk spray. Um, But having that slight chemical difference gives it a, you know, it's, it's not quite a skunk, right? I mean, I think most folks would agree that it has a skunky characteristic, but it's, it's still not identical as far as the aroma goes to a skunk. And so that small chemical change basically is what kind of makes cannabis have its aroma, unique aroma versus that of like a skunk. Okay. So, so you were able to uh, have people rate how pungent they thought a particular <clears throat> cannabis strain was, and this was related to the concentration of some of these volatile sulfur compounds. H- how did you actually measure the, the pungency? Did you, did you give people different cannabis strains and just ask them to, to rate it somehow? How did that work? Yeah. So <clears throat> because we're a, a flavor lab, we've been developing a sensory panel internally over the last few years. And so what better opportunity to kind of flesh that out than understanding one of the most important aromas in cannabis, you know, the skunky gassy aroma. And so, you know, in the lab at Abstracts, we got together a team um, I think there was four of us at the time that were on the team. We didn't want it to be too broad just to keep it more self-contained. Uh, but basically we got them together. We had essentially a blind taste test done where, uh, you know, these are labeled with a, a code and then they would go through and they would smell these and essentially rank them one by one. Um, and so the way we did it intentionally was we put the most pungent first and then the least pungent second. That way, unbeknownst to them, they at least had kind of the bookends uh, when they, they were doing the sensory on the, the remaining 11 samples. Um, and so from there, they were able to kind of fill in what they thought was, you know, the most you know, high pungency versus low pungency. Um, and also we did have them also smell the prenylthiol, that isolate in particular in the lab. So they're aware of this is the smell that we're wanting you to try to identify in cannabis um, so they were they were trained to some degree. It wasn't as intense potentially as you know other really deep sensory studies, but it was enough to really hone in on that one aroma. Okay, and so you got really clear signal between uh, pungency and chemical content, meaning that uh, I mean those two things basically track together. Most people rated the same strains as being the most pungent versus the least pungent. Entirely, yeah. Um, so the sensory, we saw a clear difference, which is good for us. Cause that means if there's clear chemical differences between some of these compounds we're looking at, then yeah, we should be able to kind of look for some sort of relationship. And that's exactly what we saw where 
um, especially using the, the sulfur chemiluminescence detector that only looks at these sulfur containing compounds. If you basically, we just plotted their intensities, their raw intensities as a function of that olfactory score that was obtained from the sensory panel. And it was almost, I, I don't want to say it was linear, but it was very obvious that there was a decrease in the olfactory score and the chemical composition kind of concomitantly. And so I think that was a really good, ev- that was really good evidence for us to say, yes, these compounds definitely track, at least with the chemical, uh, sorry, with the olfactory data. So that was, that was a very good sign for us, for sure. And was there any relationship between the perceived pungency of a given strain and the type of plant it was, like the type of strain or the lineage it belonged to, or, or some kind of, some aspect of its botanical uh, classification? Yeah. So, um, and this goes back again, Nick, to kind of like what your paper was saying. So one of the one of the varieties was blackjack, which is a typical kind of Jack Ferrer smelling variety. And um, it, d- it did not have any detected VSCs, nor did it have a high olfactory score at all. Um, in fact, I think everybody across the board said that they couldn't detect it at all. Um, and so, yes, th- in that respect, there was, uh, you know, a difference between kind of like this classification you're describing and whether we saw them or not. Uh, but I will say that at the same time, some of these varieties we got, you know, just from dispensaries and stuff, they also were at different sample ages. And so I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that, you know, the lower ranked varieties weren't higher if they were fresher. Um, right. And so, I, you know, that'd be like a false negative essentially for some of these varieties. Cause you know, if you, if you go look at the paper, I think in the supplementary information, we list off the sample age for that very fact. So folks don't misconstrue that. Oh, Gouda berry which is bred by, you know, a pretty good, uh, you know, geneticist, uh, had a pretty low score. But if you look at the sample age, it was about 160 days old versus some of the higher ranked ones, I think. So we, we actually did our own in-house cultivation study. So that was four, four days <laughs> old, right? So it's not fair to compare it in that respect. Um, but again, as far as the kind of the chemistry goes as to the classification, the blackjack for sure um, was relatively fresh, terpenaline rich, no CSCs, but all mm-hmm. the others were not terpenaline rich and they did have CSCs at least to some degree. Yeah. So there's a relationship between the concentration of these volatile sulfur compounds in the sample with the perceived pungency from uh, from human observers, as well as how old the sample is. Yes. Can you talk about talk about that a little bit more. How old the sample is? What exactly does that mean? Does that mean it was harvested at a particular time in the plant's life cycle? Does that mean it sat around after it was, uh, you know, harvested and cured and all that stuff? How do all those factors tie into this? Yeah. So every single step of the way is going to factor in, right? Because the chemistry is is going to happen regardless, right? Um, and so in our paper, we showed that basically we did a, a growth study. And so we tracked these as a function of plant growth through cure. And then just a, uh, like 10 days after curing, we saw a rapid drop within those 10 days. And those were stored in some nice, uh, you know, uh, glass jars, right? There's not mylar packaging or plastic baggies yet. We still saw a pretty significant drop. Um, and so I do think that the fresher the sample Obviously, the more of these compounds there's going to be. So if you're not getting something until 160 days later, it's not going to be that the same representative product that it was, you know, after four days. 
And so, you know, I, I think you might be alluding to the fact that a lot of folks who go to the dispensaries, oftentimes they'll have two dates on them. There's the harvest date and then the package date. And so, you know, this is, this is a huge thing because we know that even in really nice packaging conditions about a week afterwards, um, these compounds have dropped pretty significantly and they most likely continue to con- continue to drop like that. And so if your harvest date is, you know, January 1st, but your package date is not until March 1st, you know, that's about 90 days worth of time that's already passed that a consumer could even get their hands on it. And so from the context of quality and, you know, really getting uh, something that you want to be representative of your product, you know, that, that time between harvesting, curing, packaging, and then on the actual shelves, you know, you want to minimize that as much as possible because this time dependence is so, you know, so rapid. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting here that we've sort of alluded to, uh, I'll take a minute to unpack it and then I'll have you build on it. So in the, the paper that, that I did with some colleagues that was published um, a year or two ago, you know, basically we, we took all the terpene content that was available for testing labs across, you know, many, many thousands of cannabis cultivars, actual cannabis flower that goes to dispensaries and is purchased by consumers. And like overall, what we found is that the relationship between how the industry classifies this. So is it an indica, a hybrid or a sativa and terpene content? There, there was no relationship there overall. So like the average indica doesn't have a terpene profile that differs from the average sativa um, on average across the whole data set. But, you know, we used some, you know, different analytical techniques to cluster or classify uh, into different groups, all of the cannabis strains based on their terpene and cannabinoid content. And so when you do that, a couple of you know the two most distinct groups are basically characterized by having either a very high levels of terpenaline together with you know a, a, a terpene profile that's associated with that, and then all the other ones, which are uh, you know a wide range of terpene profiles, but they all share in common very very low levels of terpenaline. So you've kind of got two groups. One of them is really big. Most strains have very low levels of terpenaline and some diversity of other terpene profiles, and then you know around maybe 12%-ish of the other stuff that's out there has very high levels of terpenaline. And this is the one area where we found a relationship between the indica hybrid sativa classification that the cannabis industry uses to label consumer products and the chemical profile. The high terpenaline strains, the ones in the minority in terms of how common they are, tended to have um, an overrepresentation of of sativa-dominant cultivars or names and uh, uh, an underrepresentation of indicas. And you know, what was really cool when you showed your data at that meeting we were both at together with my data is that high terpenaline group that has a more sort of sativa bias to it in terms of the cultivars that, that belong to that group. It included things like the jack strains. So like blackjack, the one that had a very low pungency score in your, uh, in your study. Um, you know, Jack Herrera, XJ13, all these things like lemon haze or super lemon haze. And so that was really interesting. And one of the things that's interesting about that is, you know, as I'm sure you know, but for listeners, you know, sativa varieties in, in like the botanical sense, they tend to produce smaller harvests. They produce, you know, less massive buds and they take longer to mature. So those strains with the high terpenaline profile are probably either being prematurely harvested 
or uh, you know the sample sitting around longer by the time it gets to the consumer. And so I'm wondering if you could, you could comment on that and and sort of tie some of those things together. Yeah. So I mean, that's an interesting thought. Um, I, I actually hadn't considered the fact that you know harvesting kind of not at the quote unquote incorrect time. Um, just you know, if you're on a set schedule uh, for the sativa varieties, could actually be impacting this. That's that's very true. Um, but I will say, you know, so we measured hundreds of different uh, terpenaline rich varieties in our lab. We've also extracted the essential oil using different uh, distillation techniques. So we've been able to concentrate it down to look for those compounds, and we've never seen them except for there's one variety that we did, Durban Poison. Um, which I think is still interesting because I think you mentioned something specifically about Durban poison in your paper. Um, but uh, the point is, is again, that these things kind of have their own unique botanical characteristics, like you were mentioning that are kind of different from all the other varieties. Uh, and at the same time, they obviously have this difference in chemistry as well. So this lack of these uh, volatile sulfur compounds that, you know, in the context of cannabis, we call these canisulfur compounds because they're so specific to this plant as well as they're so important. Um, but we've, we've essentially never seen them in those sativa rich or sorry, terpenaline rich varieties. Uh, but in everything else, caryophyllene, limonene, osamine, all the, all the classes you showed uh, that were grouped together in that other cluster, we have seen these at least to some degree. Um, now that's not to say that there are other varieties of sativa like terpenaline rich varieties beyond that Durban poison that has them, but they're few and far between. Um, and so, you know, Hey, for folks who don't like that skunky smell, you know, I think those would be a, a better option perhaps to, uh, to consume at that point. And so these volatile sulfur compounds, so they seem to be responsible for this pungent skunky odor. Um, they vary systematically across different types of strains from different lineages. Mm -hmm. uh, they're low in some, they're higher in others. They also vary as a function of how old the sample is. So, you know, they, they go away quickly. And so that also sort of nicely sort of ties into uh, how easily many seasoned cannabis consumers can detect um, freshness. Like I, I have many friends that are, you know, weed connoisseurs. And they can pick up a sample, and if it's more than a week or two old, I mean, they can tell with one sniff instantaneously that, that it is that old or or that it is fresh. And so it's remarkable sort of how the sensory side ties into some of the things that, that you guys have seen on the chemistry side. Um, what, uh, what else can you tell us about these VSCs that might be important? So beyond their pungency and their contribution to the aroma, the, the sensory side of this, do they have any interesting known pharmacological or medicinal properties? Yeah. So I think there's a few uses for these potentially, uh, you know, in the future. So the first thing that, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the medicinal aspect. So one relationship to another plant that we've mentioned in this discussion is garlic. And so back when I was a grad student, for some reason, I was looking into the chemistry of garlic. I think I just wanted to kind of understand you know, why, why people say it's so healthy and all that. So when, when we finally worked out the structures for these in cannabis, I remembered, okay, these things look remarkably similar to those that are found in garlic. And so if you go and look, basically, it's just a slightly lipophilic, more lipophilic uh, version of the compounds that are found in, in garlic. And so uh, diallyl sulfide is found in garlic, diallyl disulfide. These are some of the most important compounds in garlic that give some of its uh, you know, purported sort of therapeutic sort of benefits or dietary sort of benefits. 
Um, and so they, you know, if you go look through garlic literature, there's quite a few different uh, re- you know, bits of research that are looking into those, those aspects. And so um, there was a nice study, I think it was in 2008, that basically showed that I think it was dialyl disulfide, uh, which is in garlic, like I said. Um, it's one of the main reasons for why it can help with your blood pressure. And so uh, structurally, cannabis has something very similar that has dialyl, uh, sorry, uh, diprenyl disulfide. So that you just have these two methyl groups on the terminal allele uh, that is in garlic. And so, you know, that chemical similarity and the mechanism that they proposed should honestly hold true for uh, the compound that we found in cannabis. Now, I'm not saying that smoking weed is going <laughs> to lower your blood pressure at all. Um, and, you know, these things are in low concentration, but uh, the fact that they're there and the fact that they have this sort of chemical similarity to other, you know, potential, potentially useful compounds and other plants, le- you know, leads us to want to investigate, okay, well, do these compounds have any sort of benefit? But another thing I'll mention is that, you know, in, in garlic, well, you don't smoke garlic and I don't recommend that, uh, but you do smoke cannabis or you do, you can vape cannabis, right? You know, you can inhale it. And the fact that you are taking in these compounds in that way, I think is interesting versus orally with, with uh, garlic, because I mean, Nick, as you're aware, I think you did neuroscience in your background that, you know, how you get a a chemical into your body will definitely affect kind of the metabolism of uh, you know, what, what happens to it when it's in the body. And so the fact that we are inhaling these compounds versus uh, you know, consuming them orally uh, may actually kind of unlock some of those sort of uh, benefits that would be otherwise lost if you were consuming them orally. And so how would you, um, you know, on, on there's sort of this uh, persistent problem in the cannabis industry where, you know, we've got this legacy classification system that people are very used to and comfortable using, indica hybrid sativa. For those who don't know, the basic I, sort of... Uh, the central dogma of uh, consumer cannabis is basically, you know, there's three types of cannabis. Indicas are one type of cannabis strain. They have certain uh, physical and botanical properties, and those strains tend to have a more relaxing or sedating effect. There's sativas, which are basically the opposite. They have different botanical and, and, and growth characteristics, and they're more energizing or stimulating in terms of their psychoactive effects. And then there's hybrids, which are just, you know, a hybridization of the two and, and they fall somewhere in the middle. And it's a really simple way to try to explain a, a complex, you know, multifaceted landscape of hundreds or thousands of, of allegedly distinct products to consumers, right? So it's a, it's a really simple way to talk about something that's really complicated. But on the other hand, the relationship between the chemistry and these uh, industry labels is, is basically a mess and um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So, you know, knowing, you know, after doing all the work that you did and the work that I and others have done, looking at terpenes, looking at cannabinoids, looking at these VSCs that you guys looked at, you know, if you were to, uh, if you could sort of wave a magic wand and it's like, okay, we're going to use the terms indica hybrid and sativa because those are so ingrained and so sort of easy to use even for the average person, but we're going to uh, standardize what gets called what, which chemistries, which profiles would you label as indica versus sativa in a way that, that you think is most sensible? Yeah. I mean, this is a huge issue in the industry, right? Is um, we, we don't want folks to have to have a PhD in chemistry or biochemistry to have to buy a product, right?
hearing this, you are listening to a premium episode of Mind and Matter. The first part of premium episodes are freely available to all listeners, and the full episode is available to premium subscribers at mindandmatter.substack.com. Premium episodes feature conversations with startup founders, executives, and other professionals at science-related companies. They involve discussion of not only the science and technology underpinning their businesses, but also other topics such as business operations and strategy, startup funding, and the practical applications around how they're using science and technology to create products or services to solve customer problems. Premium subscriptions help sustain the podcast and increase the quantity and quality of the content that I produce. However, I do not want anyone to miss out on learning from any of my guests just because they can't afford a paid subscription. If you're interested in hearing full premium episodes but can't afford a paid subscription, simply sign up for my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com, send me an email, and I will give you a free premium membership. As always, I thank you for your support. No matter how you engage with Minded Matter, the simplest and most effective way to provide support is to share your favorite episodes with family and friends. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. 